You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, uh, so my, uh, my house sits on the, the edge of basically a state park. So it's our house, you cross the street, and just thousands of acres of forest. Uh, that's kind of how it's set up. Uh, which means it gets a little rowdy from time to time with the wildlife in our area. It's, it can be crazy. So for instance, this happened last week to us. We uh, drove into the garage, parked the car, kids got out. I was walking out and, and my daughter says, hey dad, a snake. I said, oh, okay, where? She points, it's by my feet. I look down and uh, we have those sticky pads, you know, that catch critters. There's a sticky pad right there and there's a little snake curled up. Right there, hanging out by my foot. Now, I don't know how you think about snakes. They, they're not the worst thing in the world to me. Spiders are worse than snakes to me, but we can debate about that afterward. It's fine. Uh, but I got a snake here, and uh, to be honest with you, it was really pretty. Uh, I'm just going to say, it had some really pretty colors on it. It had some black on it. it had some stripes of red on it. it had some yellow on it. And, uh, and there it was, just right by me and my uh, nine-year-old. And, uh, and then a little limerick came to me that you might be familiar with. My dad taught it to me, you know it. Uh, red and black, venom, black. Red and yellow, kill a fellow. That is the worst, most morbid rhyme ever. But it was helpful in that moment because I looked down and, and I realized, well, it could be one of two things. Uh, it could be a milk snake. Sweet little milk snake, just hanging out with its red and black stripes, touching each other. It could be that. And if it's that, this is, might not be how you would handle it, but, uh, you know, someone who's okay with this little critter can pick up a little paper, shake it out in the grass, send it on its merry way. It's a milk snake. What's it going to do to me? It's not venomous. But then there is another snake uh, that looks just like it, and it's red and yellow and black, and that snake is the coral snake, and it is the most venomous snake in North America. Did you know that? It is the second most venomous snake in the whole world. Black mamba, coral snake. By my feet. This one happened to be of the latter sort. Uh, and I'm looking at it. And, you know, you respond differently depending on what you discover about those stripes. Uh, you know, with the former, uh, you send it on its way. With uh, the latter, uh, you dispatch it with impunity. Uh, which is what I did. I went full Genesis 3 on it. I crushed the head of the serpent, uh, but it did not uh, bruise my heel. And uh, I... I the only reason that I did that and not the former was this. I rightly identified what it was. How you see a thing is how you'll treat a thing. How you see a thing is how, how you treat a thing. Milk snake, get out of here, you pesky little critter. Coral snake, murder, right? <laughs> I'm, I will murder you. How we see a thing is how we treat a thing. And the same is true in, in all parts of life, right? It's so, many, so many areas of our life, how you perceive a thing to be and operate is exactly how you're gonna engage with it, uh, interact with it, those types of things. How we see things, how we treat things. The same is true with how we engage with God. How you see God, how you understand him to be, will determine or dictate how you interact with this God. So if, if God to you is mostly a, a rule dispensary, 
Uh, then the way you're going to interact with them, you, you, you will probably pay some homage to them. You'll bow the knee to them. You'll do the things that that rule dispenser told you to do, maybe. Uh, but that will probably be the extent of your interaction with this God. He's a rule dispensary, right? If he is more of like a, a, a blessing dispensary, if that's how you see God, perceive God, well, you're going to come to him when life's a mess and you need to get back on the right path, when, when you need some stuff in your life and you don't have that stuff, you'll come to him, ask for those blessings. Maybe you'll get those things, maybe not, but that's how you'll interact with him because you see him as a blessing dispensary and, and really nothing more. He's kind of like a convenience store. I go in, I get what I need, and then I'm out, right? That, that's one way that you could see him. Now, some of you in the room, hopefully you're, you're more Christian than that, and you don't come to God with, with that sort of motif, that sort of understanding about him. Uh, you come to him, and when you think about him, you think about him maybe as uh, mainly or primarily a savior, which uh, on the one hand uh, seems... Uh, right, right? He is the savior of the world. That's what the New Testament calls him. If you're a Christian in here, he has saved you. I mean, it's, it's the precious truth that we as Christians hold on to. Our God gave his life for sinners like you and me. He's, he's a savior. But I, I want to say something about that. Even that seemingly right understanding of, of what God is fundamentally, even that, there is a danger in it. You have to be careful. You have to be careful because that way of thinking could possibly make you and I treat God inappropriately too. Well, how so? Well, if he, is, if he is a savior and only a savior to you, then the only thing you're really gonna need him for is saving, right? Dallas Willard has a little term he came up for, for this, uh, for Christians who see God like this. He calls them vampire Christians. Because all I need is blood, right? I come in, I get the blood, I'm saved, I'm all better, and I'm out. But do you see, even that understanding of God distorts the interaction that we ought to have with him. He's so much more than that, that he is a savior as a gateway for us to experience him as something else. That's what I want you to, to see this morning. So I'm not d diminishing the value of the cross. We're spending all next week dealing with God as Savior for us. That's one of the, the four promises, one of the four G's uh, uh, that we're dealing with. Uh, God is gracious. But my question is, is that the most essential way to think about who God is for us in the gospel? When, when you are, if you were to grab a shovel and start digging under the gospel, when you hit bedrock, what do you hit? That's the question. What do you hit when you dig all the way down? One of the things that we're doing at the beginning of this form series is uh, we're trying to reframe the primary ways that we see our God and interact with him so we can treat him accordingly and so we can be formed by who he is, right? We're, we're seeing him for who he is in these four G's we've, we've laid out and then, and then we are conforming our lives to the reality of who he is. So last week we talked about God being great for us, right? And by God being great, we mean God is sovereign for us. So he's in control of everything. And if you're in Christ, he's your dad, which means your dad runs everything. So the, the worst thing that could happen to you is under the sovereign, controlling, orchestrating hand of God. So God is great for me, so I don't have to be in control. I don't have to manage all the things in my life, right? He's great for me. Next week, we're gonna be talking about God being gracious for me, that it, the core of who he is, God is a forgiving God. 
And so I can come to him knowing that I am pardoned, I'm clean. If I've come in Christ, I'm coming not needing to prove myself to him. Right? So we're liberated by that truth. God is gracious. A couple weeks after that, we're going to deal with God being glorious for us in the gospel, which means the most important being in the universe knows your name and values you. And so I don't have to seek approval from other people. Right? I don't need approval from them. The most important person in the room approves of me. Right? So this is what we mean when we're saying we're holding on to aspects of God's character, deriving promises from those, and, le- and living changed lives, formed lives out of those. So those are beautiful things, but there is a truth that all of these truths, I think, stand on the shoulders of. It is maybe the most fundamental way that we should understand God according to the Bible, and it's this. Who, it, who is God? God is good. Who is God? Today we are dealing with this. God is good. Not good in a moral sense. Of course he is good, but we don't mean it like that right now. He is morally good. We mean it like this. God is good like a good meal is good. God is satisfying. God is good for us. That's where we're going today. That when we dig down to the bottom of the gospel, when we hit bedrock, the rock that we strike is this. God is good for us. He's satisfying to us. He quenches the desires, the deepest longings of the human heart. That's what God is for us. That's what's at bottom of this whole thing we call Christianity. And and, and Christians have known this for thousands of years. This this has been the the clarion call of Christians over the centuries. St. Augustine, back in in the fifth and sixth century, he said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. What's he saying? You satisfy me. And we can go looking everywhere in the world, but until we come to you, we are unsatisfied. Our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. You, you, you move on like a, a thousand years after that, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 1646, the first question in it that asks this, what is the chief end of man? You probably heard this before, right? What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What are they saying 500 years ago? What are they saying? They're saying God is a being to be enjoyed. Fundamentally, what God is, is a satisfier of the deepest longings of the human heart. Now, I don't know if you're accustomed thinking about God like that or talking about God like this. I hope you are. It's in our mission statement as a church. I don't know if you've seen it, but we say we enjoy Jesus, right, and make disciples. It's right there in the Nay, we, we, that's what we do. So I hope you're accustomed to it, but if you're not, or even if you are, I want, uh, I want you to see today that that's exactly how God wants us to understand him. That's what I want to do today. That at the core of who God is, he is a being that our hearts were designed to enjoy forever. If you can see this about God, it'll change your life. It'll change your, it is radically changed my life. If you see this, not just with your eyes, but it works all the way down in your heart, it will change you. You won't interact with him the same anymore. You won't, because how we see a thing is how we treat a thing. You'll interact with him differently. You'll treat him differently to see him rightly. So that's that's where we're going this morning. I want to show this to you. Now, to show this to you, to demonstrate it from the word, we can do it a couple different ways. I, we could just look at the thousands of verses 
that reinforce this theme. We, we could go that route. We could go to Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We could go to uh, Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became a joy and a delight to my heart. You could go to uh, Philippians 3, 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, right? We, we could go to those places and demonstrate it and you would see it. But I'm, I'm not gonna do it that way this morning. I'm gonna go a, a different route this morning. Instead, I wanna take you uh, on the route that I went to to discover this truth. I, I, I read the scriptures and as I was reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what I thought I understood about God, how he is, how he interacts with us, what the primary themes of scripture are, began to change. I, I, I thought it was one thing, I started reading the Bible and it, and it changed for me. So what we're gonna attempt to do this one, I'm gonna give you a, a quick five minute tour of the entire Bible, uh, nope, no sweat, uh, and, and then we'll draw out some implications from it. But I wanna, I wanna take you on the same route that I took to get there. That's, that's what I wanna do. So um, when I came to this book, I mainly saw God as a rule dispenser, which is honestly how a lot of people it, it kind of subconsciously think about God. He tells me what to do, I do those things, things go well. I don't do those things, things go bad, right? That's, that's how the world thinks, that's the construct of God, but is that what the Bible teaches? I don't think so. I mean, you, you get in, into the Bible and I, I, I came with that expectation and I saw rules right from the jump, right? Adam and Eve, uh, the, you know, you get two good chapters out of your Bible and it turns south really quick. Adam and Eve, they fail in, in Genesis chapter three. The, the whole earth breaks, they violate God's covenant, and then we are off to the races, man. I mean, it just gets so, it spirals really quick, right? It moves from Adam and Eve to their kids. You get uh, Cain killing Abel. You get some of their descendants coming after them, corrupt men and women, Lamech. And, I mean, just like vile human beings coming out of this line that ha has violated the rules of the rule giver, right? But then it, it doesn't just stay in like individual land, it moves to nations, right? We get uh, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, yeah, all the ites, right? And they're a mess. These guys are a mess. I mean, you read about them, they're just doing horrible things, worshiping false gods. I mean, it's a train wreck of a scene as you read. I mean, we're still in Genesis, it's so bad, right? You, and, you, and you're reading and then, uh, but, the, but then it moves, away from just uh, other nations and it moves inside the house. Now it's, we, we see it in God's nation, God's own people. You know the, what the Bible says about God's own people within the text of scripture? It says that God's own people, the Jews, did more vile things than the, even the surrounding pagan nations around them. The, the very ones who had the very law of God were, were bigger scoundrels than the guys who didn't have him. And they were the worst. I mean, it's so bad. And when I say bad, I don't just mean I coveted my neighbor's goat bad. That's bad. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's goat. But, but it's more like I took my children and I burned them alive in a fire to the pagan god Molech. I took prostitutes and I put them in the temple of God. It's that kind of bad. I mean, it's as dark and corrupt as you could get. When you get to the book of Judges, have you read Judges, y'all? Judges is if the movie Groundhog Day 
and Texas Chainsaw Massacre had a baby. That would be the book of Judges. That's about what it's like. You read it and the first page is like, then Israel sinned in the sight of God and God sent the Amorites to destroy them and Israel repented. And so uh, God raised up a judge and freed Israel and Israel and God were okay, chapter two. Then Israel sinned in the sight of God and God sent the Parasites to come. That's, that's the whole book. I mean, it is so bad. They come to the end of that and they're like, hey God, can we please have a king? God's like, no. One, you're the worst. Two, I'm your king. No. They're like, no, seriously, I think it'll go well. He's like, okay. Gives them a king. It's so bad. They are so, now it's, the people are bad, but the king, the kings are so bad. Manasseh setting his kids on fire. Ahab, Jezebel killing all the prophets of God. I mean, it is so dark. And And so you can imagine my joy when I got to the prophets because the prophets are just gonna punch everybody in the face. They're just like, they're finally gonna tell it like it is. You know, they're gonna articulate God's sentiment about what this nation has been doing for the past thousand years. And I was so ready for that clarity. I was so ready for the the law, you know, break it up. I mean, the the lawbreakers to be hammered out, all, all that. And when I got to the prophets, I was baffled by what I found. When I got to, say, Jeremiah, for instance, when Jeremiah is opening his book, in the first two chapters, he has a moment where he is framing the issue of all of Israel's wickedness for them to understand. So this is God, through Jeremiah, helping us see what just happened. How are we to think about all that garbage that that has just happened in the nation of Israel? How are we going to talk about it? I was expecting just a laundry list of like, well, it's this, 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 and this, and, and that's not what I found. What I found is Jeremiah 2.13. Some of you are familiar with it. He says this, my people, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils against me. Okay, that's interesting, because I've read a lot more than two evils. So what are you going to boil this down to, God? They've committed two evils against me. One. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Isn't it fascinating that when God boils down the unspeakable crimes that a nation has committed for a thousand years against him, that he boils the whole thing down to terms of eating and drinking. Isn't that fascinating that he would talk about it like that? I thought it was all about rules, but God says in this one quote, it's actually about appetite. It's actually about appetite. And then he calls himself something. He refers to himself as what? He says, I am living water, the fountains of living water. So when we sin, what we are really saying, and this is for Israel, this is for you, this is for me. When we sin, what the scripture wants you to know is this. When you sin, you are really saying this. I don't believe God can satisfy. 
That's what sin is. What is sin? Is sin just, I broke commandment three? No. You did break commandment three. But underneath that is this. I don't believe he satisfies me. And so I'll go to this. I'll run to this. This, has a, this is promising me something that I'm going to hold on to. This, oh, her, him, this, that, money, whatever it is. We run to those things because we say, that promise I believe, his promise I don't. God calls himself food and drink for us. So is it any wonder when we get to the New Testament that the very first things we learn about Jesus Christ, the God-man, is that he was born in a town called Bethlehem, born into a manger. Now, that might not mean anything to you right at the surface, but what does the word Bethlehem mean in Hebrew? Anybody know? Shout it out. House of bread. And what's a manger? It's a feeding trough. So the first two things we learn about the God-man is he was born into the house of bread, born into a feeding trough. You think he might be trying to tell us something about himself? And then for the whole rest of his ministry, he starts saying the wackiest things about himself. He starts calling himself things like living water and new wine. And then my personal favorite, John 6, 35, where we are today. The, the, there's 5,000 men, which uh, they estimate that's probably 15,000 when you count women and children. Jesus feeds them all. And that makes them very happy. And he bounces. And they were like, dang, that was my meal ticket. So they go hunting for him, right? They can't find him. Jesus crosses the lake, all that. They, they don't know where he is. They finally roll up on him and his disciples. Uh, that, five, that crew of 5,000 or whatever, they roll up on him. And they are... They, it, they're ready for another meal. I mean, the, the, you, that was pretty amazing. Can we be friends, right? They, they come to him and they're like, that would be amazing if you give us another meal. And what does Jesus say to them? When, when he's trying to help them see their, their deeper need, that he's, he's saying it's not just food that, that is the issue for you. He says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he. Not that which, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, always give us this bread, right? They still don't get it. They still think it's got, you know, yeast in it and gluten and like, let's, let's do it. Maybe not gluten. You guys are going to email me later. All right. Always give us this bread. Then Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, do you want to know what you really need? You need God as a meal. I am a satisfier of people. I'm a satisfier of men. The longings you have, you're here for bread, but you don't know it. You're not actually really here for bread. You're here because your soul isn't satisfied. And I satisfy you. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you will literally, your soul will literally never be hungry again. You will never need to run from me to another lover again. I satisfy. 
You drink from me, you come to me, you believe in me, you see me for who I am, you will never be thirsty again. That parchedness you feel when you gotta go to the next thing and do the next thing and be with the next person and get the next job and have the, all the things, you don't have that when you're with me. I satisfy, I satisfy. I'm the bread of life. Now if that's who our God is, the satisfier of our soul, if that's who he is, then we have to answer a second question. What does that mean for me? This is what Rodney did last week. Who is God? He is great. What does that mean for me? That's where we're at now. What does it mean for me that he satisfies? Here's how I wanna do this. I wanna give you three biblical pictures of how God being good for us in the gospel is meant to form our hearts. I wanna take you to three scenes. We wanna look through three windows at three scenes unfolding of how this truth, this is the truth, guys. How this truth changes a person's life. And we'll look at it from scripture. The weapon that men have used in scripture and women to be formed into God's image. Scene one, Psalm 27. You can go there if you want. Psalm 27. Um, we're going to call this the cure for fear. Can the goodness of God s- satisfy you in such a way that you wouldn't be afraid anymore of things? Let's see what the text says. Psalm 27, I love this psalm. It's a psalm of David. He's being threatened as he often was in his early uh, days uh, with Saul. He's being threatened. His life is in jeopardy. He's got a crew of people coming after him. He says in verse two, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. So just watch these words. Evildoers eating up my flesh. This isn't a good day for David. My adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumbled and fall. Though an army, so there's an army encamping against me, he says, My heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So we have war, an army, adversaries, foes, assailers, assailants, and uh, eating up my flesh. This is a bad day for David. This This is a bad moment that he's in. The scene is not good. Now, what does David do in that scene? I mean, almost nobody in this room has experienced this. Maybe if you've been in war, maybe if, if you're uh, an officer or something like this, maybe you come something closer, but most of us haven't experienced this level of, oh my gosh, it's on the line. What does David do uh, when he's being hunted by an army? Well, verse four tells us he prays. Now, what I want us to do is look at this prayer. What does he pray? I'll read the first part. It goes like this. One thing I've asked from the Lord. So he's, he's saying, I'm just asking one thing that I will seek after. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I will seek after. Stop right there. Let's just, can we be honest for a second? How, okay, it's you. You're in the setting. You get one prayer. And let's say it's guaranteed it's gonna be answered. You get one prayer. What are you praying? Here's my, this, here's my prayer. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I will seek after. A rocket launcher. Like a, like a Tony Stark rocket launcher with a scope and like maybe, a, maybe there's two rockets. I just, something that will blow these human beings away. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> That's probably my prayer. Is that David's prayer? What does David pray? What, he could pray anything. What does he pray? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What does he pray? I just want to be with God. I just want to see God. I just want to, I just want to gaze upon your beauty. An army of men is coming to take my life. My one prayer, I want to enjoy you. I want to see you. You're beautiful. Can I just be in your company? I want you. I want you. These guys are coming to kill you. Why are you having a worship session? Because he knows something we don't. He knows that our best weapon against dread is delight. Our best weapon against dread is delight. How so? That's a weird sentence. How is that our best weapon? How does delight cure fear? Because, listen, when I'm so enraptured with God, threats to my life are just threats to my body. You can take my greatest treasure. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. You, you can take my life, but you cannot take my greatest treasure, right? You can't, you can't take it because my treasure is not my life. So you could take my life, but my life isn't my great treasure. I have a great treasure and it's the enjoyment of a person who will never leave me, even if you kill me. So I have nothing to fear anymore because I have the thing I want most in the world and it can't be taken from me. So what difference does it make if you kill me or let me live? It doesn't really matter. In fact, that's how he consoles himself at the end of this psalm. He's realizing, he's saying, my enemies are coming. It's about over for me. And then he says this in verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying, I would have freaked out until I realized I'm with you always. I'm with you always. If they kill me, I'm going to see the Lord in the land of the living. So what difference does it make if you kill me? It's the same thing that, that Paul says in Philippians 1. You remember that verse? It's one of our favorite verses here. Uh, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is he saying? He's saying, if I'm alive, <laughs> I have Christ, yo. I got Christ. I have Jesus. The thing my heart most longs for, I already have him. He's mine. And if you kill me, joke's on you, because I get more Christ. So whether I live or I die, it's Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. So who cares? That's Paul's argument. What does this mean for you? Let's, let's, let's apply it to us. Last week, Rodney showed us that one way we fight fear is by believing the promise that God is great for us in such a way that when the threat of suffering comes, we can know God is sovereignly intending it for my good. So I don't have to be in control, right? I can rest. Today, we are seeing that God being good for us means that God can so enrapture my heart that even if I lose everything in the end, I will never lose the thing I love most. And so I can be steady. I can be steady. Some of you are dying in this room. I have a, I have a sheet of paper on my desk that gets printed out to the elders of the folks in our church who are struggling with sickness and ailments and suffering and 
we get a list of names of people and what, what's going on. I've seen the list and I know in this room and watching at home are people who are dying. You've got the diagnosis and unless God does a miracle, you're not going to make it and you know it. Can I tell you something? There is only one thing that will steady you on your deathbed. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. I get more of him on the other side of this than I even do now. So my heart can be happy. It can be happy in him because death is a door to more of him. And yes, God heal me. Yes, but even if you don't, I get more of you at the end of this deal than I had to start. That's how you make it on a deathbed, this truth. So here's the promise. God is good for me, so I don't have to fear calamity. You wanna write a promise down from this? God is good for me, so I don't have to fear calamity. Scene two, we'll pick up the, the speed. Cure for envy. We'll call it the cure for envy. Psalm 73, this psalm was written by Asaph. He's looking at individuals Wicked men and women who don't love God, whose lives are awesome. And he's asking, why? Why them? Why not me? Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever felt like that? How in the world? Him? And not me? Her? That promotion? But not, it didn't come to me. How, how was I over? I love you, God. I'm obeying you. How they, they hate you. You ever feel like that? Has anyone felt like that? I want that. I want that. I want what they have. I don't have it. And it's driving me crazy. This is Asaph. It was driving him crazy. He tells us as much. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, so he turns the corner. How does he console himself? How does he console himself? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Most important verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How do we fight the longing we have to have what others have? How do we fight it? Answer, by enjoying the God we have. We enjoy him because we found him to be better than stuff and things and a comfortable life. Those are great. If I get it, that's great. But I don't need it because I have him. I have the thing for whom if I lost all things and I still had him, I would have everything. That is who God is for us. Here's the promise. God is good for me. So I don't have to have more than just him. Do you believe that? God is good for me. So I I don't have to have more than just God. Scene three. The cure for addiction. Oh, how we need to hear this. John 4. You know this passage. John 4, very similar to what we read in John 6 in terms of the words of Jesus, except this time it's not 5,000 folks or 15,000 folks. It's one person. It's a Samaritan 
woman with a broken relational past. Five former husbands, guy she's with now, not her husband. And you just hear it when you read. She has not found what she's looking for. She's repeating the behavior to get the thing she wants, and it's not working. She hasn't found it. She meets Jesus at the well. He asks her for a drink. She says, why are you talking to me? He says, if you, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. He could have addressed her on the level of activity. Hey, you did all these things. And he did bring it up. He brought it up. But fundamentally, how does he address her? He addresses her on the level of appetite, just like Jeremiah. Using the, the well that they're sitting by as a reference point, he says this in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. Does that sound familiar? The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying exactly the same thing that God was saying in Jeremiah 2.13. He's saying, I'm water for you. He uses the same word. I'm living water for you. Which, by the way, is a great proof text for Jesus claiming to be God. I am living water for you. And you are thirsty, but you are going to a broken well. It doesn't hold water. It can't quench. That relationship will not do it. I'm the water that quenches. You drink of me. You drink of me. And you will never be thirsty again. What a treasure. Stonegate, what a treasure this is. These words will change your life. Here's the promise. God is good for me. So I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. I have the well. The well's in me. It's springing up to a spring, overflowing. He's living water for me. If this sounds crazy for you, you need to consider, do I know God like this? Or is he a rule dispensary? Is he a blessing dispensary? Or is he water for me? Does he satisfy me? I'll tell you how this played out for me. Uh, I've talked to you a little bit about this before, but I, do, I care about this so much because this, this isn't rhetorical data. This isn't theology for me. This is, this is how God freed me from pornography addiction. This is how God is freeing me from gluttony. I lost 80 pounds believing this promise. And that's not go me or, like, or even that weight loss is the real issue. The issue was my appetite. I, I, as I sat with the word and started reading it, just reading it, and, and taking these promises and going, is that true? And they're just sitting and just trusting that it was and keeping coming back to him. As I did that, I, I began to, to notice that what, what was in my pantry, for instance, could fill my stomach, but it just couldn't fill my soul. It, could, it, it doesn't have that function. Only Christ could do that. As I read that, I began to see that. I kept reading, and as his, his promises jumped out to me, his character and his attributes, all of those things came to me. I was feasting on it and feasting and enjoying. And as I was enjoying that, I began to notice that at the end of the meal, I, I was too full to, to feast on the things of the world. So like when people used to ask me, like, dude, what, what was the diet program you did? I was like, I, dude, I don't, 
I don't know. That's Bible, Bible, reading my Bible. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know I was losing weight till I went to the doctor. Uh, and he was like, oh yeah, you've lost 30 pounds so far. I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, that's why my pants don't fit. Okay, that makes sense. I didn't know. I was just feasting. God, and look, again, this isn't some, all I'm saying is he's satisfying. And it's actual. And it's been actual for me. He actually frees. So the question is, what table are you feasting at? Where do you go for your meal? It, th- does pornography or romance novels or, or fantasizing, does it have you by the throat? Be honest with yourself, does it? Is it choking you out? Are, are you just in constant debt because you cannot say no to the next new thing or the next new experience? You're just racking up the debt, man. It just keeps coming. Are you obsessed with getting married? Are you obsessed with fixing your spouse so you can have the perfect marriage? Are you constantly eating? Are you always on your phone? Oh, I struggle with this. Are you always just this? Just another YouTube video, another Instagram post? Are th- is this you? What table are you feasting at? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. That promise is for you. This isn't just some theological syllogism. This is how you will survive and thrive in this life. This is everything. Church, please believe this, treasure this. Let's do it together. He is bread. And we're going to enjoy him. We're going to enjoy him as we sing here in a minute. We're going to enjoy him. That's how we win. That's how we're formed. That's how we change. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you. And yet we sin, which tells me that we don't fully enjoy you. It tells me, God, that you are satisfying a bit but God, are you fully satisfying to us? God, I pray that you would be fully satisfying to us. We are sinners because we are unsatisfied. And I don't know all the besetting sins and struggles that are in this room, but God, you do, and you know there is an antidote And it's you, it's bread, it's feasting. So God, satisfy us, we need you. God, as we sing, even this new song, God, we pray that you would be kind to us to wake us up to the fact that you really are the well that won't run dry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.